Hi everyone, welcome to our last episode of the month on a podcast directed by. We are finally getting rid of this uh, weird Australian that we've had in place of our weird Kentuckian. Um, so this month we are talking about actors who became directors. And now we move to some more modern work. Um, we are going to look at A Quiet Place, directed by John Krasinski, and Booksmart, um, directed by Olivia Wilde. So... Um, I know Andrew is just chomping at the bit to talk about Booksmart, but we're just going to have to, you know, pump the brakes. We're going to talk about A Quiet Place first. And one of the reasons we chose A Quiet Place is, of course, because Hollywood cannot leave well enough alone when something makes money. Uh, we are getting A Quiet Place too. Um, so, Andrew, I think I, I'm making the assumption that you saw A Quiet Place when it came out in theaters a couple years ago. Would you believe? Yeah. So a little bit of um, inside baseball for a minute. Um, I uh, got divorced in last year. And when I was separated or got separated, um, uh, the it was a while before I went back to watching movies at the cinema because of, of course, you know, you're kind of dealing with life and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And A Quiet Place was the first film that I saw by myself um, once the separation uh, mm-hmm. took place and all this kind of stuff. And um it's a movie, yeah. Sure, <laughs> I mean, sure, sure is a movie. <laughs> and we we talked about you know movies that these actors turned directors made, whether they're successful or not. This is probably the most successful of the films that we oh, without looked a doubt, at. yeah. It was made yeah. for like seventeen million dollars and uh, made three hundred and forty one million dollars. Uh, so this really just captured something for people. Um, this is a movie yeah. I actually really like. Andrew, it seems like it's being a little cagey and is kind of like, well, it's a movie. I don't know, man. It's not that good. But I really like this movie. Um, I think it it's better on first watch than on second watch. I think you start to notice maybe some things that you're like, okay, that's a little heavy-handed. But I also really do like that we have a, a deaf actor uh, in a role for a deaf character, uh, which is something we don't get that often. Uh, and we act, and they're actually using American Sign Language, you know, like you have to have the the subtitles on here. Um, and it's you know, of course, it's it's a you know science fiction slash horror movie, but that actually is the least interesting stuff to me in the movie. Like I like the I like the design of the characters, uh, the design of the monsters. I think that stuff is interesting, but like the interactions of the family and how people deal with loss. And whether people choose to have another child after the loss of a young child, I found that stuff really, really interesting. That's a, and I think there's a, there's definitely a divide between people, uh, when they watch this movie. There are people who are like, these fucking idiots. Why would you have a baby in this, in this situation? And while I understand that perspective, I hate it, uh, because I think it, I think it, boils human beings down to like well you know a plus b equals c like you can't like you want to you there is when you lose a child and you share a loving marriage you're gonna want probably to have a child again and even though you're in an apocalyptic scenario there's there's an amount of, of empathy i think that's lacking in people who are like well that was a dumb decision i would never do that so i kind of hate that aspects but what are, what are your thoughts on a quiet place other than it's a movie well i'm glad that we have on recording that you hate me um it's oh, it's fine you're one of those <laughs> of course i you am are. i like, am and you know why i am one of those people because you're a bad because person. the film because you're a bad person. because i am a bad person but the film 
never gives you I think I think the problem with that I have with a quiet place is that by its design it is a silent film basically and yeah. yet mm-hmm. and yet Krasinski never employs anything about silent films that help tell a story or inform characters so I found this when I when I watched it the first time that I found they were very bland characters. There's not much to them. And so it, it is reliant on what we bring to them as an audience. Mm. And on repeat, young, I wasn't going to watch this film again because I'd only just seen it when it came out. And I was like, it's been close enough. I don't need to rewatch it. But it's then been I like did. like four years. <laughs> what do you mean? It, it came out in 2018. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, it was produced in 2016. But still been two years, man. That's a long time. <laughs> yeah, on, but but I I rewatched it and I was found I came away with the same opinion that there's not enough to these characters and you need to buy into that family aspect in a lot of ways to color in the dots of or color in the spaces of who these characters are and I don't think that Krasinski or the script does that um, and I found it quite bland. And that's my problem with this film is that besides that excellent opening, I found it a very, um, very quiet and bland kind of film. Well, Andrew, which is why I find I'm I'm very sorry that this is not fucking Buster Keaton, you know, dancing around. It's not. It could have (laughs) could have fucking put a train in there. That would have really excited things (laughs) up. What? Oh, Jesus, Andrew. Uh, I mean, I kind of I kind of get that, but. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking your audience to bring, like when you're using archetypes like this, to bring their experience Mm -hmm. into it. Because I think the whole point of a movie like this is to make you question how or if you would survive in this scenario. And not just the like post-apocalyptic, you know, aliens, monsters, whatever, but like when you lose a child or when you're forced out of your comfortable everyday life and you have to go into survival mode. Like, how would you react to that? And I think it, I think it does ask interesting questions. And I would, I would push back against calling it bland. I think he does interesting things with, with color here. I think he does, of course, very interesting things with sound. Um, you mentioned that it is mostly silent. I love the sequence, uh, kind of behind the waterfall. I think that's an absolutely beautiful moment. Um, and I also like the idea of in a complex scenario like this, kind of, forgetting how easy it is to not tell your family that you love them and to expect that they would know that because you can't talk all the time and you can't have these discussions. So you have to find different ways to show it. And not only in this scenario, but with a child who's deaf, there's a lot of challenges that go, that go with it. And his way of showing love is these kind of acts of service, right? He's like, he's trying to fix her implant and make it so she can hear and taking all these steps, but she does she just wants her dad to tell her that it's not her fault and to tell her that he loves her. And of course they make this very clear. They have the brother say like, Hey, <laughs> you need to tell this to her. She doesn't know, but that stuff like this works. This works a hundred percent for me. All this stuff works. See, okay. So when I finished rewatching it, I couldn't help but think of somebody that you've, you have covered their filmography on the podcast, which is Martin Scorsese, and his words about superhero films apply to this film perfectly, that this is a 
theme park ride. It is very much a um, escape room of a film. You know, you you have X, Y, and Z that you need to do, and let's get You're to the so end and wrong. get out of this film. That is so incorrect. If anything, this movie actually like puts on the brakes a lot. Like, there's very few oh, sequences. No. Yes. There's very few sequences with these monsters. The the drama is about family interaction. To me, that's the stuff that I really held on to. Like, sure, like the the creatures are cool looking, and you have the the scene at the end, which is you know you got you know Emily Blunt with a shotgun. That's awesome. But like, they don't dwell on the action sequences. It's done with sound, and it's done it's done kind of in the dark and kind of in shadow. And the the scariest part of this movie to me is the the scene in the silo. Where you think like maybe one of these kids is gonna die, but that is not a monster attacking. That is not a theme park ride. That Can you is, imagine how exciting is, that would have been? That, no, I don't want it. <laughs> that is like two siblings caring for each other, trying to save one another. That's interesting to me. And just because there is action in a movie does not make it a theme park ride, Andrew. Don't don't make no, me no, defend. No, no, no. I don't mean action. Don't, don't, I don't mean action, Andrew. I'm... Do not make no, me no, no. go okay, against right, let, let, my favorite director. But, like, come on, man. That is a big leap to go from A Quiet Place to Captain America. That's a big leap. No, but let, let me, just let me admit, explain no, no, why no, I feel that just way. Just admit that because it's a big leap. It's a big leap. There's a big difference between A Quiet Place and a Marvel movie. Oh, there is. But what Thank I'm talking you. about now is less, is less the roller coaster ride <laughs> of it, but more when people went to go and see this film, the film taught them a language – which they're so used to not doing in a film, in like going to see a movie in the cinema, which is being quiet. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you go on a roller coaster or a theme park ride or, or a haunted house or something like that? Within the first 10, 15 seconds, you know what you need to do to make this an enjoyable experience for you. And you play along with it to make an enjoyable experience. And that's one of the best things about A Quiet Place, which is why I'm quite excited for the sequel. As much as I don't, think this is a great film i did have a very good time watching it with an audience anticipating those moments and that's the communal s aspect of it is great i love that part of it but yeah again when you watch it at home it's that's minimized it's lost but that is that's what i mean by it being a theme park right yeah sure but i mean i think there are just because a movie is better with an audience i mean you know give it let's you know, give some credit to Krasinski here as a first-time director. This cannot have been... No, 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 not even a first-time director. He directed two films before this. That's right. Brief interviews with Hideous Men and The Hollers. Neither... The Hollers was before this? Yeah. Oh, God, I think I came to that after. But (laughs) this is a a very... Let's (laughs) say this is a very different kind of movie for Krasinski to direct based on those those other two. Um, And I think he has a really good handle on how to get audience engagement, especially in a movie that like has almost no speaking throughout it. And when they are speaking, it's in whispers, you know, like even in horror movies where, you know, we got to be quiet. The killer is after us. There's still the moment where the killer comes and everyone screams. And you have maybe one moment like that in this movie uh, when, you know, Krasinski's character dies, which is actually a really nice, uh, a nice flip that maybe some people weren't expecting because he is the kind of, big dude and he's going to like save his family and really the heroic act is his death it's not fighting the monster it's not even figuring out what the monster's weakness is it's sacrificing himself for his family 
And that's what he's done for the entire run of the movie. And that scene really works for me. Um, the things that don't work for me on rewatch are how, like, I don't know why this didn't bother me when I first saw it. It probably should have, but whatever. I, I'm, I can be simple. That's fine. Is that you have this like corkboard of like, <laughs> of everything. What's his weakness? Everything you need to know about this movie. What's his weakness? Uh, they see it's sound is what, you know, brings them to us. Like it just tells you everything you know, you need. I mean, I guess you're technically showing, not telling, uh, but it's kind of telling. Like it's just like, we're going to write it all out for you. And that's a little, that's a little like sledgehammer over the head. Um, and I don't think the weakness that they figure out is like a big surprise, but I did really like that the heroes, the action heroes of this movie are the deaf girl and the mother. I think that's cool. Yeah. And I think we don't yeah, get I like that, that a lot. Yeah. 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 I'm not a complete asshole. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, but what I, I think this is the, the main issue that I have with the film is that IMDb puts it at, at 90 minutes long, but it's actually 80 minutes plus 10 minutes of credits. Like it, it wraps up at 82 God minutes. God bless them. God bless long. them for that. Good. But, but what I needed though is I needed a few more moments of intimacy and things like that. I, I, well, I think part of why I was bothered by the fact that it's like there is such a harsh edit in the way that the kid is killed at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then the next time that we see the family, Emily Blunt is pregnant. And I'm like, di- like I needed just a break in between there to give the understanding or mourning of that family, of that kid being gone. And I would have liked a moment of him and her underneath the waterfall together or him and not the son underneath the waterfall, you know, something like that, something where they had a moment together and it's like, look, with all of this that's around us, this is the only place that I can tell you that I love you and that kind of thing. And we need a whole bunch of noise to cover our love. And I would have liked something like that. I would have liked that the child that they lost meant something to them. Um, But we're so often told in this movie that, Oh, it's real sad that he's gone, you know, kind of thing. Um, but I don't feel it. And, and I think that's my problem with this movie is that I don't feel a lot of it. Hmm. Uh, which I, which I think is, you know, I've done a lot of reading about a quiet, quiet place over the past week or two. And I find a film like this really fascinating because it's, it is a bare bones film in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that, you know, they're, the concept, it's a high concept film and this is all that happens. And because the film doesn't give us enough, it does leave people with a lot of things to hang their views on or hang their opinions on. And so you end up with pieces like, um, Richard Bodie's piece, uh, which he wrote just after the film came out, uh, called The Silently Regressive Politics of a Quiet Place. Now I won't read the whole thing. But it's a fascinating read in a lot of ways how somebody applies their viewpoint onto a mm. movie that doesn't really have those viewpoints in it. Right. Um, and a lot of it is him arguing that it's a very right-wing film in a lot of ways. And yeah. and when I watched this movie, I'd had that perspective of what John Krasinski's career is like. Um, I never watched The Office, so I, I don't have an affection for that character or that show. But to me, he's kind of like, I mean, he was, he was second in line to being Captain America. So he is yeah. an all American kind of guy. I don't know where he hails from, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's somewhere in Texas. 
And that kind of thing is like... Massachusetts. Massachusetts. He's near Boston. That's Texas, isn't it? (laughs) No. It's like over a thousand miles away. That is not even close. Uh, Okay. My geography is a little little messed up. A little bit, yeah. But nonetheless, I I find his desire to be apolitical a curious thing. Because his character of Jack Ryan in... in, um, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, the TV series, he talks – when he talks about that, he's like, oh, the CIA is very apolitical. And then when he did 13 <laughs> Hours, he's like, it's a very apolitical film. And that and just not. doesn't apply to – like, he's not defending A Quiet Place in that. But I can't help but come to this film and see his apolitical nature to it and feel like, I want you to take a stance, man. I want you to have a voice or something to say. Well, I mean, I I can kind of understand that, but I I have issue with anyone calling this movie right wing or regressive in its oh, gender, in yeah, its gender I politics. I think that's I think that's nonsense, frankly. Like, I think that's bullshit. Um, because as we talked about, these are you know, for better or worse, better for me, worse for you. These are simplistic character archetypes, and they're supposed to be. Um, I think. He's taking a look at, you know, what it looks like when you have to live through something terrible and maybe have to start over. Like, what does that mean for women? What does that mean for men? And I think he's allowing you to put your own stamp on it. Um, and you could say, like, maybe you need to take a stand and actually say something. Or you could say, like, I think it provides for in- interesting, critical and audience, audience reactions, um, to this piece. But when you bring up, like, Jack Ryan and 13 Hours like those that's a whole different thing uh that oh, is, is super right wing and gross and anytime you say like the CIA is apolitical I just want to slap you in the face that's just not true so stop saying that just cuz you want your show to do well um it but is I, but 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 it comes back to the question of why this as a director why why what what about this is why he wanted to tell this particular story and from my understanding it's because he just got married to Emily Blunt mm-hmm. and uh, you know, they were having a family together and he wanted to envisage that kind of uh, family in a post-apocalyptic world. Right. And, like, I'm sorry, but if I was Emily Blunt or his kid, I'd be like, Dad, husband, do a bit more. Like, <laughs> you know, give give me a bit of oomph, you know, uh, courage and stuff like that to this. I, I just – if this is his audition reel for the apocalypse – um. I'm choosing a new player. Well, you basically. and Emily Blunt do not agree because um, <laughs> she read this script and loved it and demanded that she be in it. So he did something right. She was so. heavy on that D, though, you know, so like it's Jesus. It's a bit. Um... Jesus, Andrew. <laughs> Come on, man. We just got done talking about Casey Affleck in our last episode. Could we just chill out? <laughs> just... Come on, man. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could see. I can see why people don't like this. I can see your points of it being um, kind of bland in its character work, but I, I think a lot of a lot of my experience of it is colored, of course, by my experience of watching it in the theater. And it's a great, it's a great look at sound in film. Mm. Um, and I'm glad it got some like academy attention for its like sound editing because i think it does a great job with it it also does a great job with color like i mean when you see the fireworks going off when you see the red lights on 
I love the fact that you know, without everyone screaming and running around and doing anything crazy, we are in extreme danger now, and things are really about to heat up in this movie. And I think that, you know, I like those shortcuts. I like that symbolism of how he's... And it's simple. You know, red is bad. Red is scary. I You know, it is simple. But it still really works for me. And I just... I, I enjoyed rewatching it. It's probably not something I would watch a bunch over and over and over again, because I don't think... There's a lot to pull out of it, but as like a cinema experience, it's good stuff, man. It's enjoyable and still yeah. has enough emotionally for me to hold on to, unlike these other movies that you were referencing that Scorsese hates so much. So there. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. And I'm just I'm not referring to the uh, superhero genre as a whole, like saying that this is a superhero film, but it's just the experience of it. I'm curious for you as well. Um, like the score in this movie is very omnipresent. It's there all the time in a lot of ways. Part of me really wishes that I could watch this without the score there because I want that moment where all the fireworks and stuff like that are occurring. I want that to be like an overwhelming, um, intense feeling of sound because we've been, we've had, had sound held back from us for so long that I want it to be overwhelming and, and, just numbing in a lot of ways. Um, but I felt that the presence of the score was just a little bit too much. Uh, how did you feel about that? That I completely agree with. Um, I actually wish that there was zero score in this movie. Because uh, if you're going to really dive into the silence and what kind of impact that has on a family for us to have these like heavy kind of horror notes when things get dangerous, it's kind of like, okay, like, yeah, you don't need that. You know, you have the opening, like maybe... Maybe even just have score in that opening moment where the kid gets snatched and killed. Like, and then nothing else throughout the whole movie. I think it has a much greater impact. I mean, you know, put someone out of a job, but like, I think it, I think it is much more oppressive to really experience that lack of sound along with your character. Hmm. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I don't mean to. I don't mean to rag on it so much. It just didn't oh, you, work for me. You did in the way that it has. You came around a little bit. It's okay, and you're excited to see John Krasinski's <laughs> next movie, A Quiet Place too. So there's something there. Yeah. Um. So now we move, yeah. uh, and I think we're gonna like maybe flip uh, our roles a little bit. We move to I know one of Andrew's favorites. Uh, we're moving to Booksmart that came out last year, directed by Olivia Wilde, uh, which is you know it's uh it's just super bad for girls, right? Oh my god! <laughs> I love this film a lot. I think it's great. Uh, it's the fifth, fifth best film of 2019. I, I adore this film. Um, yeah, it's great. Um, sure, if you want to be as reductive as calling it super bad for girls, but you know what? Super bad's actually a good movie. No, it is. Um, I agree. So I think they're both good. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. It's fine. Too bad, um, uh, too bad audiences didn't agree with you because nobody saw this movie, but, you know. Oh, they just don't like women. You know, that's it. Like, <laughs> Talk about reductive. <laughs> I mean, you might not be wrong, but <laughs> it's a pretty big <laughs> assumption there, Andrew. And so, listen, mm. listeners, if you didn't see Booksmart in theaters, you're a misogynist. Just remember that. You that's, are a misogynist. That's Andrew from thecurve.au.com. <laughs> that is... <laughs> <laughs> So, what do you like yeah. so much about this movie? It's a movie that when it came out, I was kind of like, oh, Olivia Wilde's a director now? That's not something I would have 
I would have called. Okay, you know, like let's see, let's see what this is about. So what what really grabbed you? Like what makes it? Because it is uh, it is a coming of age story. It is a high school coming of age story. What makes this stand out against all the others? Because there's a lot of these, right? This is a an established genre. Yeah, and like in my in my review, I open it up referring to a bunch of the other ones that have come out: Edge of Seventeen, Easy A, Lady Bird, Blockers. You know, all of these films that have central women characters coming of age and experience life and they're all in high school and stuff like that. But for me, what sets this apart from all of them, I think this is the best out of the bunch. Um, sorry, Lady Bird stands out there, but yeah, it comes wrong, down to Beanie okay. Feldstein and, and Caitlin Dever. It oh, comes great. down to those two lead actresses. Um, oddly enough, while I appreciate Olivia Wilde's direction here, um, I think that that's probably the least exciting part of it. Uh, you know, the script is really good and the performances are great. And without those two core performances, this film would not work as well as it does. Okay, they so bring me, so much energy and so much life to it. Let me interject. I think you're right. Go for it. Go for I it. think you're right. I think that is, if you are going to love this movie, it's because you're going to love those two actresses. That is what is going to pull you along. Uh, also, Billy Lord is great. But um, I think sometimes it's very easy to get lost in like, well, the directorial choices and the cinematography and blah, 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 blah. And I, I'm guilty of that too. But in being one of these people who like kind of listens to interviews and follows this stuff, one of the things that Olivia Wilde made these two actresses do is for like, I think like three or four months, she had them live together as roommates. Yeah. So that, I think part of that Part of that thing that you hold on to, like these two are so great together, is because of that. And that that is Olivia Wilde at work. That is her as a director, like being like, I need you two to be so solid. Like, I need you to be best friends. I need you to be finishing each other's sentences and really loving each other and knowing each other. And some of that is acting, of course, but some of that is also just like being around one another for 90 to 100 days and living with one another having spats and getting back together and all that good stuff. And some of that is directorial choices by Olivia Wilde. So I just wanted to give her that credit after you said, you know, the direction is the least interesting part about this movie because you're the misogynist. Yeah, (laughs) I am. But even though, like, I mean, for me, this is a five-star film. So even like for it to be the, the least, you know, interesting part of the film is still great. Like I still, I, I, Listen to the commentary, and I highly recommend listening to the commentary on the DVD because it's a really interesting, informative uh, commentary about the making process and stuff like that, and what she, how much she did spend time actively getting these relationships to work and Mm -hmm. understanding intimately why these characters work and why their journeys are interesting and exciting to be with. And Mm -hmm. and what I love about it is that you know you've got a character like Jared who's the rich kid who just tries to be everybody's best friend Mm -hmm. and on paper he should be obnoxious as fuck and irritating as all hell and he is in the beginning he is in the beginning yeah but then there is an endearing aspect to him and it's the the actor's name is skylar kazondo and he does a really good job Mm -hmm. but that's the thing i like about this movie as well is that yeah there are outward villains in some ways but most of the people who you know are jocks or whatever and you know who may not get along with our lead characters they're still just regular people and they're not Mm -hmm. turned into villains at all they're just 
different people and not everybody has to get along or um, be best friends or anything like that. That's the, the culture of school is that we are different people and we grow up differently and have different interests. And that's what I like about this film is that she treats everybody equally mm-hmm. and respectfully. And yeah, I like that. I think that is, I mean, something you're kind of, kind of connecting with, but maybe not exactly is what really stands out about this movie is anytime you have a high school movie, usually you have your, you know, one or two leads and usually they're the nerdy kids. And then there's these evil bullies, you know, like clearly (laughs) the villains. And I like the fact that you don't really have that here. And even the people that you think are cruel, um, you find out more about them and you actually end up connecting with it. Like there's a whole scene late in the movie uh, with this girl who's, you know, been like, you know, slut shamed at school uh, because she, you know, she went down on three guys. She had this horrible nickname, blah, blah, blah. And I like the fact that later in the movie you find out not only like did this happen and did she enjoy it so fuck your slut shaming but also like what really is hurting is being treated like this by other women and i think it's you know this movie does have very clear messaging and if you if you don't like how strong that messaging is i can see you kind of reacting negatively to this because it doesn't it wears it on its sleeve it's very clear about what it's trying to tell you which is the opposite of a movie you know, we talked about earlier in this month, you know, we talked about uh, Little Man Tate, where you're like, what are you trying to say? At least you can't say that about this. There's no way to miss yeah. the messages in this movie. Um, for me, this is a movie that when I first saw it in the theater, I had a very similar reaction to you. Uh, I just thought it was great. Uh, it was like near the top of my list for that year. And then like the more I thought about it, I was like, kind of like, mm, I don't know. You know, it's okay. It's pretty good. But it kind of just, and sometimes that happens. Like, you'll see a movie, and your immediate reaction will be really strong, and then it'll kind of dissipate, and then it'll kind of, you know, and it'll kind of rest where it rests. And then, you know, I watched it again for this, and it kind of jumped up a little bit. So it went from, like, five stars to three stars to three and a half. Like, it is a good movie. It is really enjoyable. The two leads are fantastic. Billy Lord kind of steals a lot of this movie. Kind of any time she is on screen, it is just kind of a treat. <laughs> for everybody um and you know i also like you know selfishly you know as a queer person it was really cool to have a queer coming in of age story in a not necessarily queer film like it wasn't it wasn't like oh well we got to go watch the gay movie here we go it's not you know as much as i love love simon that is very clearly like this is a gay story but because you have these yeah, two yeah. main characters you get to explore a lot of different things um, and I really like that. And the movie definitely does. I think it has some interesting things to say about kind of youth culture right now. Like there is the character that, you know, Caitlin Deaver's character has a crush on, right? Who you kind of assume is gay throughout the movie. Like, you know, she kind of matches maybe what you think in your head, uh, a kind of skater lesbian would look like. Uh, so you're kind of like, oh yeah, that's, that's definitely something that's happening. And it ends up like, you don't really know. It's never talked about like, maybe she's bi, maybe she's pan, but like, and then the movie kind of goes a different direction. You know, it's not just like, oh, they're going to get the girl that they're after. They finally get their moment. I like the fact that, you know, the movie takes a couple left turns with these characters and it gets to a point, there's a scene late in the movie where Caitlin Deaver's character kind of saves everybody from getting arrested by the cops and gets arrested herself. And if you told me that scene was going to happen, 
at the beginning of this movie, when you first meet these characters, I was like, okay, this movie sucks. Like, this is, there's no yeah. way that that's going to make any sense, but it really does. And it's a really empowering moment, you know? And of course, I'm glad the movie doesn't end there. I'm glad we get the really fun scene with them in the car and crashing the, the graduation and everybody has their kind of cool up moment at the very end. But like, there's a lot of decisions that this script makes that I'm like, I did not expect that. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. So it does take, you know, for a movie that has an established genre and is a coming of age story, it's still a little bit different. And I kind of dig that. Yeah. And that's what I like about these kinds of films in the sense that, you know, especially the ones I mentioned before, Edge of 17, uh, Easy A, Lady Bird and Blockers, they're all, they're all following a routine formula that has been established by male dominated films for ages, you know, and you look back all the way to like the eighties and stuff like that. And in the eighties, book smart would have been alongside revenge of the nerds. And, you know, as we mentioned with I'm still here, which is a film that we do not recommend watching. uh, I equally don't recommend watching revenge of the nerds, which has, you know, the lead characters, um, basically sexually assaulting people and getting away with it. And that's not great. What I like about a film like Booksmart is that it takes the very, very successful formula that has been exceptionally toxic for a long period of time Mm -hmm. and then makes it good. (laughs) You know, it makes it good. Like if you look back, if we go back 20 years, even like one of the biggest films of 99 was American pie. And that film has not aged well at all. That no. that's what book smart. It's the, the realm that book smart is working in. And a lot of the things that these characters want to do are still some of the things that the characters in those films wanted to do, but they're done with earnest and a knowing and an understanding of why they want to do it. And there's and, a lived in and with empathy reasoning. towards other people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. To both people, the person that they want to do stuff with and them themselves. And that right. makes moments like the handing of a note at the end mm. feel earned and emotionally satisfying as well. And I just, I think that's why I love this film a lot is that those, besides those two characters just being such a joy to be, to spend time with you get who they are as people and you hope that these people genuinely exist in the world. And because Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Dever are Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Dever, you know, they exist in the world, Yeah, you know, and I feel even better knowing that those two people are out there being these people. And I think that's why I love this film a lot. It's just, it's nice to spend time with. And I was terrified of seeing it again at home because Mm. I saw it twice within a short period of time in cinemas. And then I was like, Shit, I don't know about seeing this at home because yeah. I had a great time watching it there. Maybe at home it's going to be different. And it wasn't. I loved it even more because I was, I knew what was coming and I was anticipating those welcome, genuine moments between these characters. And that's got to be a hard thing to, you know, I bragged on Olivia Wilde earlier, but I, it's got to be a hard thing to bring that genuine authenticity to life. Um, yeah. And I applaud her for it. I'm curious what she does as a director. And, I guess in a lot of ways, as as this is the last film we'll be discussing, I guess in a lot of ways it's it's interesting to see that this is what Olivia Wilde had wanted to direct as a director and make it her first feature film mm-hmm. because there is certainly, given the actress that she is, there is certainly a vibe of this is the kind of story that she would have liked somebody to write for her right. or direct her in. Yeah. Um, certainly not, you know, the stuff that she has been off late, uh, <laughs> which has been fine, but it's not 
this level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you and think it, that? Well, I think it's it's interesting. Um, her as a director, it's. I think it's this is a hard movie to stand out as a director. Um, but I actually argue that she still did. And there's one scene in particular that I love that I have found out uh, that some other people do not love, and it's the kind of drug aided sequence um, of these. Two, I love that sequence of these two girls as Barbie dolls, essentially, and. It's a very funny sequence. It's a very uh, visually striking sequence. Uh, it probably took, I would bet a bunch of the budget of this movie went to that sequence. Um, cause it was, it must have been very hard to pull off, but I also think it's like strangely like a very brave and gutsy scene to include in a movie like this. So, you know, you know, the basics of these characters, these women are feminists. They're best friends. They're always defending one another until they have their big fight and. You know, it's all about, you know, there's a lot about female empowerment in this. and then oh, yeah. they, But then they have this discussion about, like, you know, I know I shouldn't like this. I shouldn't like this body that I have right now in this drug-addled sequence. But it's pretty great. Like, look at this. Look what I can do. I don't need empowerment. You know, and I think that is something that young women especially go through a lot, where it's like, oh, I'm supposed to you know, be all about female empowerment, but I also enjoy being desired and having this body that I'm, that I'm quote unquote supposed to have based on like horrible beauty standards. So to really kind of explore that in a fun and interesting way, like I was a big fan of that sequence and it kind of came out of nowhere. Like I was just oh, like, yeah. wait, what, what is happening right now? And I think it would have been, isn't it? go ahead. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I was just going to interrupt and say, isn't it interesting that most of the time that when it, you have a teen film like this, where they do inevitably engage with drugs in some way, usually it's an outward experience. Mm -hmm. They're interacting with their environment in some ways. They see a cat, but really this, you know, they see a lion or something like that. Like the drugs right. are mucking with their mind in a lot of ways and, and mishaps occur because of that. And it's fascinating that in this film, instead of being an, external event it's an internal event they're they're looking at themselves and experiencing their own bodies and seeing who they are as people and enjoying who they are as people and that is a that's a fascinating decision because we don't see drug events like this in a film which is reflective and or self-reflective mm -hmm. rather i find that genuinely fascinating yeah absolutely and i think you have a good point about because I've heard Olivia Wilde in interviews kind of talk about, like, I wish that this kind of movie existed when I was growing up. Mm. Um, and I've heard people say that about this movie, about Lady Bird, uh, about Edge of Seventeen. And I'm glad, like, even though, you know, Lady Bird did very well, this movie did okay, Edge of Seventeen failed budget-wise in terms of, like, making money. But I'm glad that more of these exist. Just like I'm glad that Love, Simon exists. I'm glad there is a queer yeah. coming-of-age story, too. So it's nice that it used to be like every coming of age story, not that they're all the same, but they all had similarities, right? It's all about these like middle class white kids, right? So it's nice that this is kind of branching out a little bit and showing a different experience. And I think that is what you gain from having more women directors get hired um, for work in general is that new perspective. Like, I don't think you can make this movie anywhere near as well if you replace olivia wilde with a male director like this is a yeah. female experience of you know the end of high school uh and one that we don't get very often like are there moments that like maybe are a little 
over the top in terms of like, oh, every everyone at the school is going to Harvard or Yale, even though they're partying. But I like I like that crisis of 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 process that that gives our lead characters. Like, holy shit, I could have been having fun this whole time. This fucking sucks, man. Like that is a lot to take in, and it is over the top in terms of how that's portrayed, but I think it's still very funny. And I like, you know, I think sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up in like, well, this choice doesn't make sense and blah, blah, blah. But like, it's a fucking comedy. It still has to be funny. (laughs) And I think you can say a lot of things about Booksmart, but like, I don't know if you didn't find this funny. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to say to you. Like I, in terms of movies I've seen probably in the last five years, like, there's like maybe two, maybe one movie that I laughed more during than this. Uh, this is right up there. Like I was laughing through the whole thing. It's an enjoyable experience. It's really good. And I would say like, yeah, like it became this running joke, especially on Twitter, like everyone going watch Booksmart and to the point of people being like, ah, fuck, shut the fuck up. Like I don't want to think about Booksmart anymore. You're making me not want to see it. But if you haven't seen it and you enjoy a good teen comedy like this, I, I don't really think you can really go wrong with this one. Um, and I guess Olivia Wilde's next movie, she's doing a, it looks like kind of a biopic about Carrie Strug, who was the, uh, gymnast in 1996, um, who had to overcome like a really bad injury to compete for a gold medal. Uh, and it's based on Carrie Strug's memoir. So that she's, that's where she's going next. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of tone that movie has. Cause that seems pretty serious. Whereas this is definitely much lighter. So it'll be interesting to see how she handles yeah. tone there. But I'm yeah, and, and that. that's the like, thing. It's like, oh, very much so. I can't wait for it. And I don't know about Carrie Shrug, so I'm interested to find out about that. Dirty um, foreigner. About her journey. Is... <laughs> what is an Olympics? Uh, uh, I, oh, yeah. Just... Does Australia even compete in those? Do you guys have athletes there? Is that a thing? I <laughs> We have athletes, yeah. They're usually running away from us. Oh, you know? that's fair. <laughs> so, that's fair. Yeah. All right. So terrible. So... Um, obviously, uh, this was at least for me, like a good, you know, a good pair of movies like that. I would definitely recommend people. (laughs) I don't know. Andrew has his like, you know, weird hatred of people giving birth. So he just like is against the quiet place, but I'm glad we ended with a movie that we both enjoyed at least. So, and I kind of want to wrap, you know, this month up, um, first before we get to like, well, actually let's start with that. What, what is your favorite of the movies that we covered this month? Look, I'll I'll go with a film that I haven't seen before, okay? Because if I was to answer that question honestly and truthfully, it would be Ordinary People. But I knew going into this that Ordinary People would be my favorite because it's always been one of my favorite films. But I'm going to mention Rachel Rachel because I didn't expect that film. Um, I didn't expect what it would what it was going to be about or the performances in it or the narrative or anything like that. And I've thought about that a lot mm. and I've cherished that film in a lot of ways. And I think that it is a really beautiful film that I'm glad exists and I'm glad we rediscovered it. Um, mm-hmm. Not saying that we've, you know, you're welcome. A, world. A, a, yeah. 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 <laughs> but like, I think that's the thing is that people forget that films like Rachel, Rachel were nominated for best picture. And it's yeah. easy to forget that, those kinds of films exist and they were celebrated, you know, and so often we tend to just celebrate the winner, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. There's been a lot of great winners, but I think that Rachel, Rachel certainly needs to be held up in that conversation again in yeah, a lot of ways. I, I really enjoyed it. appreciate it a lot. So thank you for bringing that one to the table. And you're yeah. welcome, 
Andrew. What about you? I maybe made you sit through <laughs> I'm Still Here Again, but you did get to watch Rachel <laughs> Rachel. Um, my favorite is Whip It. Um, I really enjoyed that movie. It's a, it's a movie I could definitely see kind of making its way into kind of a regular rewatch rotation. Like it's just, it's just really fun, man. Like it's emotionally moving and it's good, but it's also just like a really fun movie. Like it's really enjoyable. Like I would, you know, as we talked about, it's a shame there's not more of these because I would definitely watch a sequel to Whip It. But I'm just like, you're glad Rachel Rachel exists. I'm really glad that movie exists because it's like, I'm into sports movies and I'm into coming of age movies. And this does it in a way that's really different and really stands out. And it's got really good performances and it's got like, just like, I guess the best way, it's just got like a really good energy to it, you know? And I was just like, I kind of want to, I kind of want to experience that again. So whip it is definitely, definitely my favorite of the bunch. But what is, what is the best of the movies that we've watched out of these 10? And just so people remember, we watched Rachel, Rachel, Ordinary People. Bastard Out of Carolina, The Two Jakes, Whip It, Little Man Tate, Gone Baby Gone, I'm Still Here, Book Smart, and A Quiet Place. So what are your, what's what's the best of the bunch? I mean, the best of the bunch would have to be Ordinary People and Gone Baby Gone. Um, you gotta pick gone one. Gone Baby Gone because, what you was gotta, that? You gotta pick one. Don't, don't uh, well, do I this. Think don't, ordinary people, don't do this hedging shit where you're like, well, really three of well. the ten are best. Like, no, no, best. <laughs> <laughs> well the be- the best like Gone Baby Gone is great and I'm glad that it exists because we get to see Ben Affleck grow as a director but mm-hmm. Ordinary People is a film that it's the kind of film that I love a lot right. it's the family drama it's just a basic kind of run of the mill um, basic drama but done masterfully and brilliantly mm-hmm. and me calling it basic makes it sound humdrum and dull but i mean it does suck, that's the kind so of film that i like that makes sense it's what i i <laughs> go to that's what i seek out yeah <laughs> but it, it feels it's a film that works for me a lot and um i love it i think it is one of the great films uh it is one of it's in my top 10 of the best picture winners i think it's just a fantastic all-round brilliant film yeah. um and the academy got it right that year yeah first time for everything what about you? I mean, I think the best is definitely uh, A Quiet Place, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> the best of the bunch is Gone Baby Gone for me. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's just... What do you have against the two Jakes, Dave? Uh, everything. It fucking sucks. It's terrible. <laughs> it's a bad movie. That's what I have against it. Um, so, like, just to, like, you know, rehash everything, like, Rachel Rachel, I really liked, although I thought the direction was lacking. Ordinary People is great, of course, but I don't want to just pick the same thing you do. Bastard of Carolina makes some vicious choices that I'm not a fan of. The two Jake sucks. Uh, Little Man Tate is kind of a waste. Whip It is good fun. I'm Still Here is garbage and should never be watched by anyone. And we just talked about Books Part in a Quiet Place. Gone Baby Gone just really stands out, not only because it is expertly, ter- expertly directed in a really surprising way, gets phenomenal performances, not only from young actors, but established actors. Uh, no one is phoning it in. He is directing it with a very specific look that you don't see very often. And I can vouch for the fact that it holds up on rewatch. And not that many movies, especially a movie that is essentially a kidnapping mystery, hold up on rewatch. Uh, and I think that really helps it stand above kind of everything else that we've watched this month. Like, I just, 
And it's a movie that I, I love the fact that it surprised me so much when I first saw it, that I walked in thinking, oh, this is going to be terrible. And I was like, oh my God, this might be like in the top two or three of this year, this amazing year of movies that they had that year. So that one really stands out. And it kind of, it's interesting. I think this happens sometimes when a director comes out of the gate really strong. We kind of talked about this uh, when we did Karen Kusama and she did Girl Fight, her first movie. And sometimes it can be, it can be a negative because like now everything else you do has to live up to this great film that you came out of the box with, you know? And even though like he won in, you know, Argo, you know, got all the critical acclaim and the Oscar acclaim, like, I mean, Gone Baby Gone just buries Argo. Like it's not even close to me. It's a much better movie. It's much better. Uh, I think it's much better structured. I think it's much better, better written, better directed, better acted. Like it's just incredible. And this is what usually happens, right? The Academy misses out uh, on a really good movie. Like, I know it got, like, a nomination for Best Supporting Actress, but that's kind of it. Um, and then they make up for it. Not that Argo's a bad movie. It's a totally fine, enjoyable movie. I like it a lot. But, like, Gone Baby Gone is just, man, that movie just, it pulls no punches, but also doesn't delve into the idea of of grief porn. You know, which yeah. uh, which I think you got from Bastard Out of Carolina. Like, we're going to show this oh, yeah, old man so. raping this girl. You don't have to see that for it to have an impact. And I think Affleck knew that. He knew that, like, okay, all I have to show is my actor's reaction to everything that implies. That's enough. I don't want to have to show yeah. that, and I shouldn't have to show that. No one should have to watch that. So, Gone Baby Gone, yeah. for me, is the best of the month. Um, which is a little annoying because it's one of the ones I liked already. So it does feel like, well, I was right. That's correct. Good job, Dave. But like, it. Really, I think that really was the was. expected outcome, though. You know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, w- I think what I I quite like though, uh, and you mentioning Karen Kusama is, um, I think the Gone Baby Gone would be a perfect double film for Destroyer. Like, it's oh yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is a yeah. They both, like, I mean, a huge, I'm a huge fan of Destroyer. I think it's a really, really great film. Uh, and it's a film that holds up on rewatch as well. Um, just like, uh, Gone Baby Gone does. So you've got a good knack for picking, uh, filmmakers and stuff like that. Yeah. Goddamn right. All right. So. Except for that case. Yeah, well, yeah, that was a mistake. That one's off me. <laughs> uh, so to kind of wrap this up, like, this was, you know, your big idea for a podcast a hundred years ago. So did you, what do you, what do you take from this month from, 10 examples of actors turned directors. Um, it's made me reassess what it means to be a director in a lot of ways and what it means to be an actor. And, uh, I don't know what that is for either thing. I'm not an actor or a director, but at least I get an understanding of the creative decisions and voice, the authorial voice that certain actors want to have or bring to their films. And that fascinates me a lot. I, I think that it's a really interesting thing because um, you end up with your Ben Affleck or your Olivia Wilde to feel like they're doing films that they want to be in. Mm-hmm. And the only way they can get them made is by being the director. And it makes me reassess when a actor decides to step away from acting or move behind the camera and become a director. And it makes me look at their filmography in a different light. It makes me assess, okay, what weren't you doing as an actor that you can do as a director? Um, and 
certainly uh, some of the questions uh, bring up uncomfortable answers. Yeah. Again, talking about I'm still here. But then on the other hand, you look at a film like Rachel Rachel and you think, okay, that's a really interesting, fascinating perspective on mental illness and society as a whole and the way that we treat women from a man who I didn't expect to direct that kind of story. And right. it then colours his filmography, both in front of the camera and behind the camera, in a completely different light. So that's what I've gained from it. Um, what about you? Um, I think the most interesting thing for me, and of course this is a small sample size, you can't just be like, oh, well, yeah. all actors who turn directors are like this. But I do I do see a a stark difference between the act, the, the directors who choose like, Oh, I'm going to pick the, the actory movies, right? The ones that like maybe I would, I would like eat up that monologue. So I'm going to find some good stuff for actors. And I think you could throw ordinary people into that, even though it's a great movie. It is very much an actor's movie. I'm much more mm. impressed for better or worse with a movie like Gone Baby Gone that doesn't have those. There's not like that's not a movie with a bunch of monologues and a bunch of showy actor pieces. It's gritty and it's kind of down on street level. Um, and I think, I think it's interesting that that is a director at Ben Affleck who has gone on to do other good movies. He made, you know, maybe one mistake depending on who you talk to as far as, as far as that one movie, but like he's got a pretty good track record. And I think that is because he is picking stories that are interesting to tell as opposed to, well, I have this one story to tell, or I really want to like bring in a really good actor to like just murder this monologue. So I find it interesting that you have kind of two different schools of thought with these uh, with these actors turned directors. So that's been really interesting to watch. And then you have ones like, you know, Jack Nicholson, who it feels like he just kind of got thrown into that role and then never did it again very, very intelligently on his part. Um, but I think what you bring up is really interesting that there is a lot of and this is especially true of female actors turned directors. It's like I always wanted to have a story like this and it didn't exist. So now I now I have an opportunity to actually tell it. And I'm so glad that, you know, someone like Olivia Wilde, who maybe did not have the best reputation in Hollywood. It's not like she's a name like Drew Barrymore was or, or Jodie Foster was. So she had to work really hard to get funding mm. for this movie and get it made because she she saw a gap and was like, I need to tell this story because it doesn't exist. And I hope that um, because that can be kind of dangerous in a sense. Because sometimes once you tell that story, then it's like, where do you go from here? Right? That gap is filled now. So what more do you have to give? So I'm really interested to see the next thing she does to see if that yeah. extends to other stories that she wants to tell. So yeah, but it's been a good month. It's been a very different month. You know, it's, you know, usually you just take one director and go all the way through. So there's definitely a clearer through line. And this one kind of jumped all over the place. We got a little bit of everything, but it was, I liked it. I think it was a good month overall. So thank you for the idea and thank you for uh, being the co-host this month. It's not a problem. Um, now, how do you rate me against Mike? Uh, putting... <laughs> oh, look at that. We're out of time. Uh, not going to do that. Look, I gotta, I might be moving close to Mike soon. I can't be like, you know, making enemies. You both, you both have your pros and cons. That's, that's what I'll uh, say. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of Mike, <laughs> Next month, Mike will Ever be the back. diplomat. <laughs> yes, that's right. Next month, Mike will be back. We are uh, in April. We will be talking about Rob Reiner. Um, so just really quickly, the movies we are covering are This is Final Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, The American President, 
Ghosts of Mississippi and The Bucket List. So talk about a little bit of everything. Like that man has had a varied career. So we will be going through that. And in the meantime, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, uh, you can follow us at Directed by Pod. You can find Andrew's writing www.thecurb.au.com. Uh, and you can donate to our Patreon and get those kind of extra interviews uh, at patreon.com slash a podcast directed by me. Stay right there.